0: trail and ultra runners. What is going on? What's happening? Welcome to another episode of the Coop Cast. As always, I'm your humble host, coach Jason Coop. And this episode of the Coop Cast is a special one because I am coming to you live from the adventure van. I'm out on the road right now, but I still record podcasts on the road. Hope you guys enjoy it. This podcast is with none other than Simon Marshall who's a sports psychologist and I had his wife, Leslie Patterson on, on the CoopCast just a few weeks ago. We had an incredibly hilarious and really honestly practical conversation all about sports psychology. I really appreciated talking to Simon. He is one of those very funny yet down to earth and practical practitioners in the space which all too often get weeded and clutter up with woo-woo type practitioners. I think you guys will really enjoy this conversation. I really enjoyed it, and I'm gonna get right out of the way. Here's my conversation with Simon Marshall. I always feel that when I talk to really highly specialized people, especially people who deal with anything with the brain, (laughs) <laughs> it's it gets really complicated because like the brain is this mysterious organ that we really like we really don't know very well and it's got mm-hmm. a lot of allure to it and you know half the people that that tune in are really fascinated by the brain and the other half get tuned out just because it gets so freaking complicated overwhelming yeah it's yeah. overwhelming is 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 a really good word and so since we're going to spend a little bit of time like talking about some of some like really technical like neurophysiology sure, stuff sure. Let's start with the basics. Like, I kind of feel like this is going back to college, like freshman level anatomy yeah, yeah. and physiology for the brain. Yeah, Let's yeah. kind of start with that. And then we can then we can dive into how sure. sports performance actually works in the brain. Sure, sure.
1: I mean, and we can keep it, you know, uh, we will keep it very sort of light and hopefully unjargony um i'm gonna use I, that by I, the way unjargony yeah yeah unjar- <laughs> that's not a word it should be de-jargonized uh, um now we can we can start so how do you want to do the the start and uh, let's do it now or do you just want to just roll it okay yep, let's do it now so well wh- one of the one of the i think the most fascinating things about the human brain for me is that over the last probably 30 to 50 years, which might seem a lot in terms of science terms, but in terms of what we've known and how we've studied this human brain, it's a very short period of time. And one of the things that we've learned, and this is the caveat to anything that you read about brain training uh, or this new device that you put electrodes on your head and suddenly you can become an NFL player. Well, you know, (laughs) don't don't get me started on some of the the, the dubious claims, but but one of the, the, the myths that we've dispelled well, we've dispelled a number of myths, one of which is that the notion of left people are left-brained, right-brained, and we're abusing all of our brains the majority of the time. So that's one thing. Oh, you're artistic. You must be, what, right-handed or left-handed. I forget which, you know. The, um, so that's one sort of area that's been sort of frustrates, certainly neuroscientists. And the other is that we've conflated structure with function. So in other words, one of the old beliefs, and and both in pseudoscience, like phrenology, remember the the, the b- of the head and this part of your head is this and but even in a scientific terms that has more science behind it the notion that there are particular locate physical coordinates in your head that are responsible for job a b and c and we know that that's not true either. Most parts of our brain have this wonderful sort of symbiotic relationship with other parts. And so the brain is really best thought of as, yes, it's uh, an organ. And in in, in my famous uh, favorite Woody Allen quote, it's my second favorite organ for most people, <laughs> my brain. Um is that it's, it's a series of networks and algorithms. That's really the best way to describe it. So all of the things that even our, the, what we think of as our mind, these sort of abstract thoughts and feelings that kind of swirl, they don't feel necessarily physical, but they're sort of in our some abstract space in our heads. They're all properties, emergent properties of, of brain and central nervous system physiology. So bre- neuroscientists don't really separate mind and body. Mind is part of the body. It's just that one is an emergent property of the other. And it's very hard to sort of measure it uh, when it comes to things like abstract ideas or concepts. So function and structure uh, get confused a lot. And we are guilty of doing this as well. And we point this out in our book is that whenever you hear that an author or um, some scientists are trying to use a metaphor to explain what the brain does and how it plays tricks on. So they'll often talk about structure like, Oh, there's the prefrontal cortex that does that or the limbic system right. that does that, right. that we do. But in actual fact, the small print is sort of far more complicated than that. So that's the sort of the, the little caveat to the, you know, the the simplistic (laughs) metaphor that many of us use.
0: But it's prevalent though, right? I mean, like you said, everybody tries to use these different metaphors for different areas of the brain. When we talk about sports performance though, what are the key ones that we're going to focus in on? Yeah, so the parts and
1: and the nice thing is that uh, your brain doesn't care whether you're in a sport environment or not it just knows that you're in an environment that probably at some level poses some threat to you it could be a physical threat uh because i don't want to hurt for nine hours uh in the mountains uh it could be a purely a psychological threat that you're worried about being last or being left behind or not being strong enough relative to other people So your brain's mechanisms for figuring out what is threatening are really quite primordial and and unsophisticated. They don't they can't separate nuanced of like, well, it's a it's a C race versus an A race. No, your, your brain is like, listen, listen, dude, human, am I going to get eaten or not? Okay, we're good. Is there an opportunity to shag or not? Okay, no? Okay, we're good. So what's left over? So what's left over is I don't want to feel humiliated, embarrassed, or shown to be inadequate in front of other people. Those three things, humiliation, embarrassment, and inadequacy. And, the, and Mother Nature has actually given the human brain... Uh, like mechanisms to kick and scream against the likelihood of those situa- anticipating those situations happening. And, and millennia ago, that would have meant death because you're ostracized from your troop and you have to fend for yourself, both in security and foraging for food. And so you probably would die if you, if you did get ostracized. But now, you know, the, we, we, you, you aren't. And so, but your brain, of course, doesn't know that. And so all of that, those sort of feelings and thoughts we don't want, come from a fairly, no uh, coincidence, a, a fairly reptilian primordial place in our heads as well, right in the center. Your, the human brain is just like a tree. If you cut it uh, in in a sort of a lateral plane and you count the rings on a tree to how old it is, the, the, the parts in the middle are the oldest parts of our brain. And so the newest parts are the wrinkly stuff on the outside. Um, and so... The, f- the, f- the structure and function of the deep parts of our brain, the limbic system is one of those, carry quite prehistoric survival mechanisms for when we were literally just, you know, some, some uh, a nervous system and some muscles trying to get food and stop being used as a toy for somebody Everybody else. <laughs> um, so that, unfortunately, that wiring system that we call our chimp brain or your limbic system, about the size of an avocado right in the center where all of our urges, cravings, all of our emotions come from. Is pretty much on genetic lockdown. There's not much we can do to change how that is. Uh, we can change the parent of it, which is your frontal cortex, what we call your professor brain, uh, so that you don't offend people all the time and just steal everything or hump anything that moves. Or all the other things that make us good, responsible human, you know, citizens. Um, but many people do have a limbic system that is a very highly agitated or very on high alert all the time because of the way the structures. And that makes some people's lives really miserable. So some people do have, if you have chronic anxiety, for example, or you've had depression, structures in your limbic system, in that part of your brain, are just wired slightly differently. And you can make your life experience, not just of sport, but of anything where there's a potential to be humiliated, embarrassed or inadequate. It, it you know, blows it all out of proportion to the actual threat.
0: I think a lot of I think a lot of people listening right now are completely identifying with these areas of humiliation, embarrassment and inadequacy inadequacy because they, you know, I mean, those are normal responses, especially in an athletic environment. And to kind of explore this a little bit more, I'm going to start. At the end of what a typical or what it's what a <laughs> typical athletic journey would be, and I, I actually think this is probably the, what you're going to say is the wrong place to start. But we're going to do it here. We're going to do it here anyway. Okay. And this is in competition, right? Because everybody wants to fix their psychology for a competition. That is typically the end goal of it all. Oh. And why I think it's the wrong way to start is because we typically think about it right before the competition in terms of how do I fortify my sports psychology in order to gain the extra last 1% of whatever. Oh. But specific to what you were just mentioning in, this, in these areas of humiliation, embarrassment, and inadequacy, those tend to be accentuated during the times of competition and so especially especially especially, especially and so what about competition actually does this? And what happens on a, on like a neurophysiology level to accentuate yeah. those qualities?
1: A, a lot, lots of things. In fact, most of this happens in milliseconds before our sleepy frontal cortex, smart brains have even had a chance to figure out, wait, what, what what's happening? But it's just a race. Wait, <laughs> why am I needing to go to the toilet for the seventh time? Yes. And why does my, yes. why does my stomach the morning of a race saying, why do I do this to myself? This is, there's nothing fun about this or why did bill talk me into this effing race i'm never doing this again or what psychologists call thoughts of escape you know those (laughs) thoughts that you have in the first 20 minutes what am i doing here i've got no business being here get me out of here can i get a flat tire can i fake an injury you know all the some of the sabotaging <laughs> thinking that, 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 that goes on. Or maybe I'm just being a bit too about me, my own. Uh, uh,
0: <laughs> no, there are a lot of people that are curling up in the corner right I now because they've know. done the exact same thing. So continue. Well, we're all continue. the same. So,
1: so here, one really interesting lesson from the psychological research is that the – As a goal, as a human goal, is to try and get rid of negativity or be as positive as possible without any negative gnawing away sort of demons or anxious is not only futile because we've never met anyone who's able to do it. And if they they have say they've done it, they're either lying or they're on psychotropic medication because they have the same ingredients as that I was born with. And we know... A little bit about the sort of neurochemical soup in our heads and how it responds to sit different situations. So I always find, uh, you know, people who claim to not feel X or Y a little bit, you know, with a little bit of suspicion. <laughs> there are some people who, who are, that. we can talk about those folks in a moment um, if you wish. But yeah, so, but, but I, but I do think in its essence, one of the struggles is recognizing you haven't got to win the negative thinking fight, the negative thinking Mm -hmm. battle, the really good athletes, what they actually do is they learn to compete hand in hand with all the things that make them scared of being humiliated or will I look stupid, embarrassment, am I doing it right, or obviously inadequacy, am I good enough? Mm -hmm. So those three questions, all athletes, regardless of whether you're winning an Olympic medal or you're doing an endurance run for the first time. Human, you, you have a human brain. It's still equipped to react the same way, right? And you're not going to do this to, to reach this magical nirvana state where everything is positive. No, you're not. The good athletes <laughs> learn to jump ahead. So the metaphor I like to give this is often a metaphor they use in psychotherapy. So imagine that you're standing on a a, a hillside and you're watching a battle rage beneath you. Think of a sort of a really like brave hearty medieval type broadswords and blood and gore battle. And on one side is all of the parts of you in your head, thoughts and feelings of how you want to be or how you wished you were. And on the other is all the stuff like the real, mess that it actually is your life right so all the things and you're watching this battle and we spend our lives buying another self-help book to sharpen that sword or give them a bigger bigger uh, shield or give them a bit more an advantage or wait till they're sleeping and then attack them or whatever the (laughs) you know the metaphor you like to use and And because that is so difficult to do, one of the reasons is that we don't have as much control over what we think and feel as we thought. Thoughts pop into your head. I can create thoughts in your head without you, even if you don't want them, I can give them to you and force you to think about them by just saying certain things. So we can't do that. So the good athletes, and this is actually the good stress managers in general, what we learn or we teach them is turning away from the battle skills. So in other words, instead of watching this battle rage beneath you you're going to say i'm what i'm going to do is get you to look in the opposite direction you can still hear the battle behind you and that they'll be fighting for for probably the rest of your life Mm -hmm. they'll still be here when you come back the same old gripes the same old moaning but wouldn't it be nice just for an hour that we could just leave all that behind us and be be somebody else or not have that for the moment. Or we kind of put it in a box and we drag it along with us, but I've tried to muffle the sounds and the clang of swords as much as possible. So all of the techniques that really seem to be much more effective, this isn't just now for sport. This is actually now... Uh, uh, showing to be the case in psychotherapy is the turning away from the battle versus trying to fight and win the battle seems to be critical so this is the distinction between a what we call a control model of thinking which is a lot of what cognitive behavior therapy is i'm trying to think of all your the ways that we are irrational and replace negative with positive and there i'm not putting cbt and those just in that in that bit bucket but that's a lot of what we try and do a lot certainly the self-help world is that when really some of the more successful approaches one of them is called acceptance and commitment therapy is to the saying we're all we've all got sort of a, a, a front with peanut galleries in our heads but you know what we just have to learn to be better at jumping hand in hand with it so come on annoying racist grandmother who's at thanksgiving <laughs> a, a metaphor for that. (laughs) for that ugly thought that you just kind of like, we have to love her, we have to have a round, but God, I'm going to, you know. So this is the way that we actually start to be better. And then when you you talk to elite athletes, that typifies how they've been able to meet these goals. They've become better at becoming friends with the enemy versus trying to beat the enemy.
0: So while all the mess is going on, They learn to work in concert with it, is kind of what you're saying. That's
1: exactly right. Or to learn how to... It's like the parent who's tuned out the toddler doing this every... You know, and if you if you don't have kids and you're around parents who have kids, and they're like, do you not see that the child wants your attention, and that the parent has been amazing skill at just being able, ah, oh, let's tune them out, right? So that's where we'd like to get to with our the thoughts that we have that say you're not good enough, you're too fat, you you don't deserve a coach. Look at you, everyone's quicker than you. Why don't you do something that you're actually good at? You've been all of the nonsense that our chimp brains try to tell us all. Well-meaning, because what does it want us to do? It just wants us to not be humiliated, embarrassed, or shown So it's going to try every guilt trip in the book to get us to say, you know what, I could do it another day. I'll put it off until later. Right. That's what it's trying to do.
0: Okay, so you mentioned how the elite athletes – that you work with, and we can also say maybe, maybe elite athletes in general have learned these skills, right? That's the end goal, and that's why I was saying earlier that we're probably starting at the wrong place, but I like the picture that it painted. How do athletes get there? Because there's all of the there's all of these things out there, and some of them are psychobabble babble, and some of them are not. Of how you can become more compassionate, and you can disassociate from these feelings, and all of the meditative realms yeah. and things like that. There's there's a lot for athletes to kind of like weed through. They recognize that their head can be a shit show come race day. I mean, they they know it, they know it, but they don't know how to get to the place where they're good with the shit show happening and they can still perform. So, what do you take athletes through? What do you have? Enjoyed?
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's a great question. And this is one of the big paradox, uh, uh, paradoxes in psychology in general, we're trying to use the problem to fix the problem. Do you know, see why that creates a sort of a weird <laughs> conflict right, of interest? Right. right? right so right. this organ, this three pound lump that makes some of my life miserable on a Saturday morning, because in two hours, I know I've got to go out there and deliver on some capacity or something that i'm scared of and yet at the same time i'm trying to read how this thing that's causing me all this angst is also supposed to suddenly fix itself and magically make all that stuff go away so the reason that most of the techniques that work they're actually sleights of hand metaphorically speaking mm. they're kind of like they're they're tricks they play they leverage biology that we have based on the diff- how different parts of our brain are actually functioning. So some parts of our brain work very, very quickly. Lightning speed, like our, our chimp brain is one of those, right? So within sort of uh, uh, 500 milliseconds, half a second, adrenaline is or if we think or detect something that's, you know, I see Sally you know, quick runner at the race. Oh my God, I didn't think Sally was gonna be here. Oh my God, so now I'm just obviously racing right. for second again, you know, and all I've done is I've seen, I'm having a conversation with Jane and I see Sally out the corner of my eye and within, without me thinking, Sally's here, so therefore I'm gonna be this, oh my God, I do, not, f- half a second, right. adrenaline is right. already coursing through my veins and setting off. There's a whole lot, uh, set of other reactions Orchestrated by this thing called our HPA axis in our heads to set off hormones and neurotransmitters to get our nervous system on high alert or ready for the showdown with Sally, right? And of course, when our real brain catches up, our frontal, our, the real you, our professor brain, the wrinkly frontal cortex, that says, Oh, but Sally's a love, she's love, she's really sweet, you know, she trains hard as well, <laughs> right? uh chimp is saying doesn't matter she can show you to be not as good as everybody else so you need to crush um uh, annihilate sally at all well hang on a minute but i'm a nice person this is the two brain fights right so we get in these discussions often they're at a subconscious level all the time and so what we have to do the first sort of guiding principle is again it's based on the assumption that might seem it's easy to say but it but it might actually sound uh um controversial mind is the same as body your mind what you think and feel is a emergent property of your physiology of your nervous system activity so if your if your nervous system your sympathetic nervous system part of your autonomic nervous system that controls alertness and arousal and get ready for itness cortisol and adrenaline um if that's going to change how you feel and think uh, so hormones and neurotransmitters can directly change and influence what you words appear in your head, thoughts. And so ground zero is if I only try and say, I should not start a ground zero. If all, all if all I try and get you to do is to talk you off a ledge, I'm strong, I'm confident, I'm beautiful, I know I can, I know I can, Right, the, the mirror oh, yeah. self-help bullshit that doesn't work. The reason it doesn't work is because the, the the part of your brain that's been governed to give you those urges to get away, to leave, to why are you doing this – are far more in fact it's five times quicker and five times mm. stronger than the brain that is trying to say yes but yes but it's a fight that you're never going to win right. so we have to try and for any technique to work we have to try and calm our body down and that's easier said than done right so as most athletes now it's become is you know if there was a year of of mental training for athletes last year it would have been the year of of meditation right, right? or headspace <laughs> right. or and so and when, when we talk about meditation for athletes, one, you get the eye roll, like, oh, please, no. You're gonna to talk to me, oh my God, meditate, really? I, I have to listen to Enya and join a drumming circle? <laughs> Fuck that, I, I, you know what I mean? Give me something, Doc, that I can, you know, it's just, for, for athletes, they're usually more action-oriented yeah, they're like yeah, physical yeah. things. Right. So just lying right. on the bed right. when I'm already right. anxious or nervous, which makes lying on the bed, trying to concentrate even harder, it's really impossible. So, so for athletes to saying, do I have to have four years of tantric yoga training uh, if I want to get a handle on these demons that are telling me to not do be an ultra runner. No, you don't. And so what we do is we say, well, let's take some of the principles that meditation is teaching and really the essence of it is called passive attention training. And passive attention training is simply, I use the metaphor of a firework display. Wouldn't it be great if our thoughts and feelings were like watching a firework display? As the big explosions in the air of think this, feel this, uh, but within seconds it's vaporized and before another mm. one has come up. Yeah. And I don't get a chance for, the, for that firework to say, aren't, aren't I amazing? My colors come <laughs> with me down the hole of negativity and I'll show you how shit you really are. Come on. I'm so right. So that's the way that most of us, our relationships with our thoughts and feelings are at the moment. They are suggestions that pop up in our head, for, for often for no reason whatsoever, um, or someone has said something or I noticed something, and we follow them voluntarily down a hole that makes us feel negative and miserable and all of the other self-doubt we have. And so if I could only say, I see you, but not today, or I see you and. Can we talk about this when we get back? I've just got this 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 three-hour race to do, and then we'll get into the what you're worried about. So that's the relationship that we we kind of want to have have with it. So we start with breath work and eye work, the two portals to our nervous system that we can control. I can control what I look at mm. and I can control the type of breath that I do. And breathing and uh, your your eyesight and your breath are intimately connected neurologically to threat detection centers in the brain. So ground zero is control. I mean, we've known this for some time, of course, you know, the Michael Phelps comes onto the deck, he did, you know, hoodie and headphones, control Mm -hmm. your ears and your eyes. We've known that if I can stem the tide of sensory input that my brain is going to process five times quicker than my thinking rational brain i need to run with blinkers on or with ear defenders so i don't get that reaction starts to cascade but i can actually be a little bit even more proactive by not just running interference on stuff i can actively calm those threat detection centers down. And there's some really now good research, some of which is coming out of a guy called Andrew Schuberman. He's a neuroscientist at Stanford. Has done some work on eye tracking and breath work that both quickly and rapidly impact autonomic nervous system, which changes our dopamine, serotonin, cortisol, adrenaline, this like constellation of our neurological soup that makes us feel good and makes us feel motivated.
0: So you're basically saying that I'm going to go back maybe like 10 minutes, if we can remember back that far. From a neurochemical standpoint, we almost don't stand a chance Because of this, because of the speed of the chemical reactions that happened, as you mentioned, five hundred milliseconds, half a second, all these you know hormones and things are getting dumped. All these chemicals are getting dumped on our bodies. We don't have a chance to control that dump, but the mechanism to help to to help control what how you react to that chemical dump are behaviors. That you're reinforcing and training somehow, and you're and you're reinforcing the the eyes and the ears.
1: That is that's exactly right. And so one of the things that we can do, for example, and some of the research is still new on this. So one of the the, the pieces in our limbic system in our chimp brain is called the amygdala. You might have heard mm-hmm. of the amygdala. In fact, we've got two of them, so amygdalae is plural technically. A little almond-shaped devices that work a little bit like satellite dishes on our heads that are scanning the skies for incoming threats to Jason, right? Or incoming (laughs) threats to Simon.
0: This is what Uh, Alex Honnold has none of. If if anybody has watched Free solo
1: I I will talk about why (laughs) Alex
0: doesn't. um, We love you, Alex, but go ahead, We do, we do.
1: (laughs) So, So basically this, your amygdala, which is responsible for, think of your amygdala as having a sensitivity from like zero to 10, right? Zero is I have to literally punch my amygdala for it to say oh what's up boys are, is, are things are things gonna get bad what i didn't notice right these would be
0: like mma fighters right uh,
1: mma fight well yeah or threat sensation seekers in there general okay a, yep. a, a, a divers parachutists yep. cliff jump you know whatever those people who have a right and their amygdalas are literally not literally metaphorically speaking encased in a wetsuit right they they don't feel right uh the same way the threshold for triggering that reaction now take someone who. Who's the exact opposite end of the spectrum, Most the tiniest puff of wind on their amygdala, metaphorical wind, of course, um, which is what really post-traumatic stress is. Post-traumatic stress is amygdala hypersensitivity syndrome, mm. essentially. So your amygdala has been either through trauma or through genetics or through a combination of other uh sort of exogenous insults you know too many drugs and other kinds of stuff um uh can either make this part of our brain really wet suited or very very Mm. sensitive and we're all born and even in fact i will say so for example a really interesting fact is the level of circulating cortisol in your mother's um uh, blood while in, while you're in, ut- in utero has an impact on the, d- the sensitivity of your amygdala that you're born with. So if your mm. mom during her pregnancy was under a c- tremendous amount of physical or emotional stress, and there was a lot of circulating cortisol, your amygdala as a, as a fetus. And then as a, as um, an embryo, then a fetus and growing into a baby is actually, you're going to be prime. You're going to come out of the womb. Like, as though the world is about to attack right. you, right? Because you that's the, right. environment the environment that you've, so there are, there are some environmental things, obviously how you're nurtured and how you've been, you know, grown up and so on. But we all, so for example, if you have high levels of what we call trait anxiety, so you kind of, you just, you just a bit more anxious than a, than your, you run hot generally, you just things are a bit more anxious than, than other people that you know of, or you think of your amygdala is probably a little bit more sensitive. So, how races or big training sessions feel to you, how scary they feel, are kind of probably be more exaggerated compared yeah. to the if if Alex Honold was actually a runner, <laughs> uh, you know, he'd be like the probably on the start line, look like the chillest dude yeah, you ever met. Totally. Um, and they've just, you know, some people have uh, you know. Uh, won the amygdala sensitivity lottery for some things. <laughs> I will say, not to speak to Alex at all, this isn't including him, but people who have very uh, insensitive amygdalas are usually also at much higher risk for substance abuse and infidelity. Mm. And and that's partly because of, it, it's a reflection is also about dopamine, what I need to feel like alive or pleasure or anticipate excitement. You know, you can't have it both ways. You can't have a dull amygdala. I don't feel fear. But I also need more to feel a rush. So those people are usually a little bit more in the sense. So, so don't marry a base jumper if you can. I was about to say, <laughs> don't
0: marry an endurance athlete. That's the I same that, category that. of people you're talking about, right? Well,
1: endurance athletes, <laughs> uh, endurance athletes seem to be a little bit different. They, they are certainly the research that we do have. Uh, they they do have a little bit more neuroticism and anxiety no and, the, and they're not and the sport doesn't make them like that the sport attracts that right. so we've yeah. at least we've we've kind of sorted out the the temporal pathway now of yeah. that but <laughs> but it's certainly to my knowledge that endurance sport endurance athletes aren't necessarily sensation seekers or because i because that would be inconsistent with being generally more anxious mm-hmm. but
0: <laughs> okay. So we're gonna we're gonna back, back to training again. Right. Yeah, yeah, we started yeah. at the end, we started the competition. You briefly touched on it. Some of the initial skills that you work yeah. on with athletes are with vision and and I'm with breathing. sound, or with breathing. Sorry. I don't know why you keep saying sound. With vision, with breathing. There's this notion in training, and I come from a like a classical physiology type of background. Yep. And so I think about training in terms of the amount of dose I need, the amount of training dose in miles or intensity or some combination of those two to achieve some sort of physiological response. I need to lift 40 pounds because I lifted 30 pounds last week, something like that. Athletes will oftentimes think of like building a a psychological skill set in that same way. I need to do something first. What's logical to do first? And then what's logical to do second? Is that even the way that we should be thinking about it though?
1: it it is with a caveat so the is part is that your brain responds to the principle of overload just like your body does Mm. in fact that's a key principle of brain development generally i have to stress tax and strain in order to grow denser thicker larger right that's the concept of neuroplasticity in the brain i mean that is other elements are about how the, the 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 pathways or the network of neurons fire and so on but in general Generally, it does. So your brain responds very well to being strained and stressed. And in fact, if you don't do it deliberately, your brain will bludgeon you until you do do it. <laughs> and so you, you'll you know this as being bored, for, for example. Right. So when you're bored, you're like, nothing seems to entertain you, but you don't know quite what it is. This is really your brain saying, I need some stimulation. I need some overload. Uh, So your brain loves novelty. One of the the functions of our, one of the ways that we know that we can entice the brain to do things is give it a reward, but mess with the human about when they get the reward, Mm, right? right. So we give them a reward like intermittently or we call a intermittent reinforcement schedule in psych terms. So they think like a a slot machine, right? So the, the way that you can make the dopamine neurons in the human brain go absolutely loopy is ask them, to pull a lever, and there's a chance that they could come away with nothing, something, or a lot, right? And you don't know what you're going to get when you pull that lever. Your brain is, that's like, you know, dopamine porn in your head, right? That sort of environment. <laughs> so this is why we're often, many of us are, are literally addicted to uncertainty when there's an outcome that could be really favorable, mm. Um, now, uh, in, in sport, of course, what uh, particularly in endurance sport, we have often the opposite. What they often say is the best athletes are those that can tolerate boredom the most, right? Mm, So now there might be no novelty, but I have to survive six. my my easy long Sunday run and I have to be out there for five hours or six hours. And there's only so many podcasts or bloody things I can listen to. So your brain will struggle a lot more simply because... That it doesn't really—it likes to stay occupied unless right. you can get. We talk about the computer brain, the one that runs our autopilots. So, but you've heard of being in flow state or something—this, this sort of weird, nebulous concept that you can be in this total immersion in a task that you lose all sense Mm -hmm. of time. And, and you just like, Oh my God, where did it go? And I was just immersed in it. So there are, there are some circumstances where the the, the stars align and you, even if you're doing something for a long time, it doesn't feel that way. But, but most of us in endurance sport, that isn't the case uh, because one of the things that stops us feeling getting in flow is having a noxious stimulus, right? So in other words, something hurts, Right. It's hard to being a flow state when you're in pain or a lot of discomfort. Um, And so that's one of the challenges of doing, finding that special place in,
0: in, in endurance sport. But brass tacks, you want, if you want to start with vision and with breath, Right. If you were, to, I, I hate to do this because I hate people asking me this question. No, no, these no, like no. universal questions that everybody should apply to, and we know how individual and nuanced it is. And you can give all your caveats to this piece, right, of, right. P- piece of advice now. But if you were just to say, "Listen, if everybody could just do these things to yep. start out with, we would be in great shape."
1: Okay, I'll, I'll give you. I'll give you two, or I'll give you three you can give me be, a 10 be, if you want to it's okay, your show. T- okay. <laughs> uh, so, okay the first one which is actually about breath so um as you as uh, your some of your listeners may know um you we all have a a, a huge band of muscle that is at the base of our thoracic cavity called the diaphragm it is muscle and we can voluntarily control it it's also under involuntary control that's why it keeps us it helps us expand our chest cavity when we're asleep. But we can also, I can deliberately change the tempo, the pace or the depth of my breathing, right? And that's, it's because of a nerve, a phrenic nerve, which is going from my be, uh, base of my, um, uh, top of my neck to my diaphragm, like helping regulate how quickly it contracts and so on. Now, the good news, and this is the, where the mother nature hack part of the breath work comes in, is there's about 200 neurons that sit on your brainstem, top of your brainstem that control uh, the, what we call the sigh response, the S-I-G-H. You know, when we go like that, we've just done something that's really hard or difficult and it's over. We're like, oh, thank God that's over. I've been doing
0: now, that now that I've been recording my audiobook. I did that like a hundred yeah, times today. I know, I
1: know. <laughs> so that, that's an innate mechanism that humans were born, animals were born with it as well, um, uh, that activates 200, around 200 neurons to cut, sends a message to our threat detection centers to calm down and to our diaphragm to 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 lower the 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 tempo and the depth of our breathing so that's what happens physiologically. So, we can reverse engineer that process as well. So, if I can somehow manipulate my diaphragm, the, the phrenic nerve is also going to hopefully tell the 200 neurons hey, we're good. We've, we've just done a, uh, a we're, we feel in that sigh state that something I feel relaxed and calm. Now, something's over. So, the physiologic sigh breath is. A, a form of breathing that helps maximize that reaction to calm you down quite quickly. So Andrew Schuberman from the Stanford lab talks about this quite extensively. And they've got a randomized control trial actually running about this particular breath compared to other breaths for lowering biomarkers of stress and also mm. some subjective stuff. And so what, what that looks like is it's two a physiologic side breath to activate these 200 neurons is two. Stacked nasal inhales. I know. Try saying that. I mean, what a ridiculous Stacked statement. Stacked nasal inhales. So you're breathing through your nose, yeah. one on top of the other. Yeah. Right? You're then holding that breath for the length of time that you did the tube uh, nasal inhales, and then you're breathing out through your mouth for double the length of the inhale. So this is what it looks like if you are going to show your video. I can see you, Jason, but your listeners might oh, not be able to there's see There's a YouTube me. version, yeah. Okay, so it sounds like this. So that's just one physiologic sigh breath. Now, that works within seconds to calm threat detection centers down in your brain. I defy anyone to try it and not notice. They might not necessarily equate the feelings, the sensations they get after that breath with automatic calmness because we've become highly habituated to sensations that our brain gives us. And so I think that that means this when it doesn't, but in essence that you are getting a physiologic, neurological relaxation response by doing that. Now there's a law, there seems to be some law of diminishing returns on this. If you do it more than three times, you don't seem to get as much of a bet or you don't seem to get any additional benefit. So what we say to athletes and anybody who's going into environments that are pretty nerve wracking or stressful, when you've got like a minute to go, you're standing stage left, <laughs> or someone's doing the introduction before you go on and give your talk, or it's just that, you know, you're waiting for your date to arrive, or whatever it happens to be, stepping onto the before the gun goes off. If you do that breath routine two to three times, you will your your a parasympathetic nervous system, your brake pedal for your the part of your for the activation alertness system is gonna calm you down. And immediately, remember, it's hard to have an anxious thinking and feeling brain inside a relaxed body. So that just doing that alone, you'll start to feel better. And this is something we should be teaching elementary school children. Uh, to, instead of the use your words, Jimmy, we need to be saying, Use your breath, Jimmy, right? Learn how, Jane, learn how to, before you calm down, because otherwise you're just speaking to a an agitated chimp and, and obviously kids are all chimp. So they're just going to be screaming and, and whatever they want, urges, cravings, you're going to hear all of it. So having them calm down gives us a better chance of talking to someone in a sensible way. Anybody who's agitated, the last thing we want to do, well, the first thing we want to do is get them less agitated so that we can then talk to them. We're Mm. the same. So if we're going to do any sort of mantra or physical, like uh, a positive thinking, or I'm going to do this little routine that makes me feel good. If I'm doing it in a relaxed body, it's going to have a much better chance of working. So the breath physiologic side breath is one.
0: Another. Really- wait, wait, wait! Before you go yeah, yeah, on, yeah. I'm gonna let I'm gonna let you continue, but I I I I would be remiss because my woo woo bullshit detector went off just a little bit, and I'm yeah, sure yeah, yeah. I'm sure you've heard this before. Yeah, yeah. What is physiologically significant about these two features of that exercise? The first one, nose versus mouth, because nose yeah, yeah. breathing is all the rage now, yeah, as you know. Yeah. And yep. the second one, the timing. What are the yep. physiological significances of yeah, those yeah. two of those two actions? <laughs>
1: that they're, they're great questions. I don't actually know if even the respiratory physiologists or the neuroscientists who study respiratory physiologists know the reason, right? So one of that we do know, though. For example, the different areas in our brain that control, like, generally the rhythmic part of our breathing that you know, I know that an exhale has to follow an inhale, right, and there's a different part of our brain that regulates, I need to breathe in, and then I need to breathe out, and I need to do that over and over again. But there's another section of our brain, another part of our brain, that controls uh, um, unrhythmic breathing, right? So why why does our brain have to have a capacity to learn how to breathe on or out of sequence Mm -hmm. or or just like not have a straightforward in, it's because we talk as and we breathe at the same time so if all we had was this sort of this uh pre-bot complex the part of our brain that regulates the rhythmic breathing we wouldn't be able to talk we'd be having to (sighs) so there are there is there's probably something connected to the different oversight of the types of breath and when we try and dysregulate it by i'm i was a longer, uh, uh, you know, an exhale to come then, and it didn't. That could be one reason. The, the reason that the, some of the physiologists, uh, I should say, the neuroscientists give about the nasal inhales, and this may be, again, Um, a stretch of the physiology but the metaphor that's often used is that so as you know obviously when when you breathe the little the alveoli will inflate uh uh and there's a surface tension to those alveoli this is and again I'm, i'm not claiming this to be fact i'm saying this is the defense of the two stack nasal inhales Mm -hmm. so just as you would do blowing up a party balloon a kid's balloon and you blow into it and that it's really hard to get it you know you get it a little bit and then you break that surface tension and then it suddenly goes so the argument and and again uh, the stretch receptors in alveoli membranes i don't know whether they they, just like a balloon uh, i'm sure yeah (laughs) Uh, so the, anyway, so one of the one of the theories about it is that you actually get uh, the in, uh, uh, um You can inflate your you get better gas exchange, bigger lung volume by doing a one inhale on top of the other. Whether that is a physiologic, there's a good biological pathway to support that. Who knows? Yeah. But what I will say, and this is where it comes back to where I sit, which is function is key for athletes. Like, okay, what if I don't, if we don't necessarily, we want to understand mechanism. That's the, obviously the Holy grail, because then we can start to manipulate control and predict and so on. But if we don't, we just know that, listen, are there any downsides to doing this? Are there any negative side effects? We don't know. Okay. You could do some, you know, there, there are some contexts of course, where you're doing ra- rapid hyperventilation, breathing or yeah, breath holding right. and doing underwater, whatever. We know some of those, but if you're an endurance athlete, overland, and you're trying to, calm your nervous system down, focusing on a pattern, whether it's a box breath or a, a physiologic sigh or a Wim-Hoth, or, well, actually not Wim-Hoth because that'll probably do the opposite, uh, to calm or to activate our parasympathetic nervous system down. We don't know what exact form that looks yeah. like. That's why one of the Schuberman lab, what they're doing is they're testing the physiologic sigh breath compared to a box breath, a standard four, four, Mm. four, 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 you know, whole breath. So who knows? But I think it's an exciting time.
0: It's it's interesting because every single week I get asked about all of these different breathing techniques. And I kind of take the same approach you do. It's like, wow, we really don't know the physiological consequences of this breath versus that breath, but we can see some of the outcomes of them. We just don't know what's in the middle, right? We know the action, we don't know the middle, but we know the outcome. So anyway, thank you for entertaining that. I know there are people that are listening out there. But also
1: passing passing out of placebo as well is really really difficult, right? right? And part of psychology, this is why psychologists get a little bit frustrated by placebo being seen, particularly among physiologists, as being the sort of thing you're trying to avoid. Whereas psychologists will be saying, well, listen, a placebo is a demonstrate demonstrable effect that it has on a whole but now of sure mechanisms important but we can also use that to our advantage right 100
0: okay so you got the breath <laughs> I, I cut you off that was the first one second one right
1: second one is about coming out of visual neuroscience which is uh the rather awkward phrase called a self-generated optic flow and it's based on the principle that at uh, the back of our eyes, there's a, there's a layer, as an epithelial layer of cells, about three, uh, it's called the neural retina. It's about three, se- uh, like width of a credit card thick. Uh, that really is brain tissue. So basically your eyes, are, is it's a fairly late stage evolutionary role for eyes to sense objects, right? Uh, what what eyes were originally designed to do, even if that's a phrase that isn't sort of set off at lots of alarm bells for you know the caveats to all this, but eyes really are about detecting or knowing how to put the body into an, a system of alertness or relaxation, right? Or to sense dark light cycles, right? Or all of our is synchronizing our our body's clock to um, to rhythms that go with light and dark so so our eyes play quite a key role in telling your brain and body whether I need to get ready to run fight hide be chill and so on and the, and there's a direct connection between the neural retina and some of these threat and centers in our brain and what what the visual neuroscience community has found and is that when you are going to, when you get a level of uh, alertness or agitation, so this is all sympathetic nervous system, cortisol, adrenaline, other neurotransmitters and hormones start ramping up. Our attentional field narrows. They call it, we foveate. We get narrow and narrow. And that's just so, for good reason, right? I'm paying attention. I need to, this is important. And that's a normal reaction. When it goes off the deep end, we know it as, you know, Uh, 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 paralysis and stage fright and, and, you know, fight or flight response, but it's a normal reaction that we want. Um, So, and our eyes tend to, and when we force our eyes to narrow, to foveate, it also starts this alertness response. So obviously when we are nervous or too stressed, or we want to not feel uh, as anxious, our eyes play a critical role, what we look at. And so what happens is that when you are out in, in time and space, in the real world, outside, and you're walking, or just you're sort of moving through time and space naturally, the natural pattern for the human eye is to wander, to scan the horizon. Now, it's, it's not as clean as left to right, left to right, because you're obviously looking up and down. But generally, our eyes are scanning our environment, and for good evolution uh, uh, evolutionary reasons, right? Like, now, not getting hit by a car, but then looking out for predators, peripheral vision, and so on. But there's a state that our brain seems to have a lower level of when I say agitation. So, all the indicators of that alert response seem to just level off or reduce when we switch, when we go from sort of a portrait mode to landscape mode of vision. And so, this principle is behind. As a, as a whole, um, uh, a technique now for helping people uh, overcome trauma, mm-hmm. uh, like PTSD, is called EMDR therapy, yep. eye movement desensitization reprocessing, and it's basically capitalizing on, in 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 a nutshell, the fact that if I can purposefully train my eyes uh, to scan horizons, I mean, again, there's there's. There's, the, as, there's a, the the small print about how it works and why it works is a lot more complicated than that. But in essence, that's what I'm doing. So for athletes, what we say is that why does make going for a run make us feel better, or why does doing any exercise feel better? Well, there's some reasons we know now, like brain, uh, body temperature, uh, and brain temperature, and all these other reasons why exercise generally affects our mood but one of the newer interesting is this mechanism between our neural retina and our threat detection centers is that we we because when we're inside and feeling stressed we're probably a bit have a vision or focus like this and when we go outside or forced to we switch to panoramic and that activates a set of neural circuits that help our brain calm down so this this is uh, the, 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 where this, the rubber hits the road for this uh, is to say, okay, I've got something that I'm nervous about, or I'm stressed about, and it might seem the simplest piece of advice to just, you know, why don't you just go off and walk for five minutes or something, or just, yes, that works. But while you're doing that, don't take your phone with you, or try not to just, you know, be looking down at your feet. What I would like you to do is i you'd like to walk, and just pay attention on, on actually looking at your surroundings, right? Mm. And so... So that seems to, and again, some of this research, some of the experimental evidence is still fairly new. We've got evidence now in mice uh, that their threat detection centers, their visual system, that calms them down. So there's a good reason to suggest that that may be the case in humans as well. So controlling your eyes is a, is a critical piece. And not just blinkering yourself, but making sure that you've got some good horizon scanning sort of uh, emotions in your prep. These seem so simple,
0: and that's yeah. what people are going to think right now. They're like, okay, you're telling me that this specific breath technique, you're going to have to remind me on the vocabulary, the double-stacked yeah, yeah, yeah. breath. What is it again?
1: Yeah, yeah. it's uh, it's called a physiologic <laughs> sigh breath.
0: Physiologic, physio- no, the, no, the the two inhales. Oh, two-stacked nasal two inhales, stacked, yeah, so just breathing in- twice yeah. through your nose. Yeah. Thank you, two-stacked nasal inhales. And scanning the horizon Yeah, are two of the fundamental things that people should start with.
1: Well I the reason I say that is because these aren't hacks the ha- the word hack mm. it may be for you as well makes my hair stand on the back of my I don't I'm like with you. the phrase I'm with you? You. <laughs> so these are inbuilt mother nature, whatever you want to call it, they're mechanisms that the human brain and body already has to help us manage stress, right? Mm. We just don't use them often volitionally. We we actually, you know, we could do, but we don't nearly as much as we could to help us react or respond to stress or cope with stress a bit more. And so it certainly doesn't, Uh, it's not the be all and end all. uh, But if you want the if you want a good soil to work in to grow your seeds of being calm and confident, you got to focus, start, you got to start focusing on relaxing the body enough. So this stuff, the other stuff sticks.
0: Well, it's almost like you're taking an evolutionary biology perspective first, let's work on those things first. And then we can work on all the other things. after.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, yeah.
0: That's so interesting. Okay. So now we're going to go back to the beginning, which was the end. If people are keeping track, I'm losing track now too. <clears throat> yeah, yeah, yeah. This is something that is really specific to endurance events and more specific to ultra endurance events. There's a lot of space. Mm-hmm. Right? A lot of space. And you mentioned earlier a couple of things is one that the best endurance athletes are the best ones that are being bored. They can deal with that space. They can deal with all that time. They can just handle it better. But there's a lot of there's a lot of space, and I used to say doubt, but I'm not. Now I'm going to use some words that that came up <laughs> earlier in the conversation. There's a lot of space for humiliation, embarrassment, and inadequacy, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> or the or perceived of any of right. those three for athletes to kind of go through throughout the course of a race. And I see this all the time in ultra marathons where an athlete comes into mile sixty, mile seventy, mile eighty of a hundred mile run, yeah, and physically. They're they're pretty beat up by that time. I mean, they've run sixty or seventy or eighty yep. miles. So like that's, that takes a physical yep. toll, but they're not nearly on the level where they should be dropping out. Yeah. Somehow they're erroneously extrapolating how they feel right then to how they are going to feel in another twenty miles, and they say, "No, nah, I just can't do it." I can't do it. There's not a, like I've I, I've been internalizing this, right? For all this time, I'm going to be, you know, that much more humiliated, embarrassed, or feel that much more inadequate between mile 80 and mile 100. And yeah, they, yeah. they kind of choose to quit. And it is the quintessential mental DNF. Yeah. And it happens all of the time. What like What is out there to prevent that from happening? Because I have to resort to physicality where I kick people yeah. out of the aid stations in order to battle it. So I'm looking for like a selfish reason for some yeah. tools that I can know. use. That's a
1: great, that's a great example. Um, so there's a couple things. things. First, firstly, just about what's happening and then what to do about right. it. So obviously when you're left alone for long periods of time, most of our thoughts, because we're we've been endowed with a very powerful prefrontal cortex, and, and we have one of the few species that can time travel in our own heads. Right, we can think about situations that are in the future, have never happened, or in the past. Um, and so, when we don't have competing, we don't have a lot of, we don't have a busy environment to distract us or to pull us out of that. We tend to retreat, especially if and we, we in our book we talk about having a default sort of a atten- what we call an attentional style things like think of it like you got four tv channels only four cnn fox news whatever think of four channels and you we all have the one that we is our happy channel the place that we like to be in and that and that usually they, they vary on a function of internal external so some people like to be in their own heads some people outside their own heads and then broad and narrow so you, that creates a four little quadrants so if I I'm a broad internal my channel is what we call broad internal so I when I get stressed or nervous I go in my own head and I strategize I problem solve I you know try and I I don't get focused on one specific thing the broad part I get focused on the broad part, yeah, right? Yeah. So I'm all over the place, which is a good skill to have, but under pressure or stress, right. that becomes your mm-hmm. undoing. Now, someone who is a narrow external person, sorry to use these confusing phrases here. So now, when they get stressed, they go outside of their own head and they see and they focus in on a one particular detail, right? This is the kind of the deer in the headlights. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's the also we know the channel that is most conducive to doing well in elite sport, right? Especially Especially if you have to react to things, so this is more applicable to ball sport athletes than mm. than sort of just monotin, you know, sort of uh, monotonic, you know, monotonous, uh, 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 um, closed motor pattern um so anyway we get we we start so it's no the perfect storm to worry and think is like an endure is an ultra right it's just like if you couldn't create a better set of circumstances (laughs) and then you add in some level of predisposition to worry or anxious like anxiety or neuroticism and it's the perfect storm for getting sucked away on this like downward spiral of negative thought and in fact we now know what's happening in the brain why that happens and what things are actually can help like um uh, like counter that tendency to get lost or caught up in the the red firework that's telling Mm -hmm. pick me to go and think why your life is pointless right or whatever it happens to be, or why this is a stupid thing that you've chosen rather than just let it fade in the next one so that becomes managing that process, like what I'm focusing on in the moment, as a function of time, becomes really critical. Um, and again, it's it's no it's no uh, um, uh, no coincidence that the 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 place the last place you need to be is inside your own head. So what we say is. We need to get you out of your own head as much as possible. So you give yourself little mental games or targets or things that you can do when you're running. And we typically do this like mile, you know, or time from our four to five. This is your little mental game that you play, mm. right? It might be an eye target game. And so you pick out things in are uh, 300, 200 to 400 yards in the distance and you run towards them. And as you're running towards them, you're counting things that you're getting more acute of it's a tree and now I can now I can some close enough to see there are actually five branches and the leaves are some so you're like you're trying to figure out what you're but you're running towards something and then you do that again that is a simple technique to get me out of my own head right because there's I'm having to pay attention to something it's like when you this is why running doing anything in the presence of other people you do, you perform better. And this is one of the the most robust psychological findings. It's called the social facilitation effect. It it was first demonstrated in the 1800s by a guy who studied cyclists, actually, a guy called Norman Triplett. Uh, But it's since been replicated that in the presence of someone else doing the same thing, you will do better right? So now you're saying, well, hang on a minute. Okay. In cycling, I, I can draft, of course, but what about side by side? And I have to wind a fishing reel in and who can wind in the most line in, in the 30 seconds, I wind in more line if I'm doing it with somebody else. So the brain, the human brain is wired to be faster, more efficient, more gutsy, more persistence when you are in the presence of, some. this is the nature of competition, right? So spending a lot of time on your own with nobody else around with an anxious disposition, it's the perfect effing storm to get lost into the the lone sock in the dryer, which is your nagging thought that you can't get rid of. Right. So find things to occupy yourself with. If there is someone who's running a similar pace, have a conversation, even if it's just for a minute or two. Talk to a marshal or someone on the course who's helping, any chance you can get to pull yourself out of your own head, if you are a an over-cogitator and warrior, that will be very helpful.
0: One of the things that I give my athletes to do, and it's all of those examples are perfect ones. And I've heard a lot of sports psychologists, sure. they come yeah. up with their own little games. Yeah. But the one anchor point that I think is extreme that is extremely important with these is to to pick. A moment in time or a moment during the race that you're going to do it. Don't let the athlete choose where to do it. You're going to say, listen, you're going to do this at mile 70. And yeah. you might be guessing when they actually need to go through that yeah. exercise. But what, just what I found in practice, and you can, you know, you can mm-hmm. espouse on this however you want to, is that they're left to their own devices the sock in the, in the, in the, in the dryer, <laughs> the as you mentioned, will just keep going and it'll, ne- it'll ne- and it'll never stop. Yeah, they might need it at mile 65 versus mile 75, and you said it was really 70 or whatever it yeah. is, and you're yeah. off by whatever. Great. But the fact is, is they did it, and you gave them a deliberate point to do whatever activity to get out of their own head.
1: Yeah, that's, you're you exactly right. So rumination or having the tendency to get stuck on particular patterns of thinking is also one of the good predictors of depression and other mental health issues. So it's a good reason to try and avoid getting stuck into that process generally. Mm. Um, but any chance that you get to run some interference on that process is going to is going to help, right? So any any and again, there's no there's no. Uh, um special uh book about you know what the thing is there's right. nothing special about you know thumb tapping or talking <laughs> or fucking counting leaves or stop signs or whatever it doesn't matter but it's just really running interference on effort perception and our sense of time there- and that's gonna help
0: everybody out there that is gonna pace somebody this summer for a race is now like you know, in their little conniving minds coming up with the most absurd, ridiculous games to play with their runner when they get there. I'm, I'm pacing some people for some 200 mile races this summer. And now that's, this has got my wheels. Well, It's, uh, that, it's funny because
1: one of the, one of the things that we do with ultra runners, especially, or actually, uh, or, um, man or, or, People who do more than one Iron Man at once, you know. Um they one of the things is with your crew or your support crew, if you're lucky to have support crew, is that you talk through the kinds of feedback you want when, right? So you're Mm, pre-planning the things. And so I need you to be, I need you to be a drill sergeant here so when i am moaning that i've had enough i need you to say get the back out there you you got and i also know that when i'm going to hurt myself because I'm in a bad way and I want to get back out there, you are able to step in and how to do. So you have to have that conversation ahead of time. And the reason, to go back to your point, why you should never let your brain figure out what to do when it wants is because you're using the problem to try and fix the problem. The thing that's giving you the most angst now is the last thing that you want to rely on to tell you would now be a good time to change, right? So having a little bit more of a plan. So we'll have for our particularly for athletes who are doing events that last at least four hours, we'll, we'll have a, a a piece of paper with their psychological game yeah. plan. It's like by either time or distance, this is what you're going to be focusing on for this segment, then this, then this, then this.
0: Yeah, and as you know, that's usually the last or the least considered point. Usually people are focused on their splits, how fast am I running, how, you know, what's my bike split going to be in a triathlon and things like that. They're focused on their nutrition. I'm going to take a gel at minute 43 and then two blocks at minute, you know, 57. And they get down to that little level of like level of precision that is, you know, not at all material, but then they leave off all of these other cues from their race plan that they should actually have. And I look at those things. I'm like, there's a big chunk of this missing. In fact, all of this stuff like the order of priority that you just put all this stuff on, yeah, it yeah. needs to be reversed. Like yeah. you're going fi- to if you don't have your nutrition program figured out by now, you shouldn't have to write it down on on a piece of paper. You should have it dialed. Like you should be telling right. your crew this is how I want you to react in these types of situations.
1: Yeah, absolutely. No, I, I agree wholeheartedly. And that's also just consistent with having a good sort of process focus, right. That all the things that are gonna sort of help. Um, yeah, but I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a challenge. Uh, but I, the thing is that amazes me the most with athletes is how, and coaches how much of their sport that they still attribute not still, that they attribute to the role of what you think and feel, mm-hmm. yet how little effort they devote to getting better at it. And, again, there's nothing, you know, if you think of your head just like you would a muscle – you have to, you know, principle of overload and specificity. And it's still the kind of similar process to getting better at it. This is why the the adage is that you cannot learn mental toughness. You have to earn it. Right. That's the no amount of reading that you can intellectualize what you could do, but you get better at it by doing it. That's the overall. It's like trying to think your way to fitness, right? You can't do it. <laughs> I love um, the analogy.
0: Think your way to fitness. I'm going to use that.
1: <laughs> uh, you you can't do it. So how many times are you doing a training session in a month where you look at it and say, "I can't do this." Who I don't know who the, this my coach thinks I am. I can't do this. Like it's it's scary. Right? I'm not talking about this is going to hurt, but I definitely know I can do it. I'm talking about, I don't think I can even finish this. What are you talking about? So we like to put athletes in that situation at mm-hmm. least once every two weeks. Because what we're doing is the way that the human brain eventually d- draws a new line in the sand of what's possible. And we know, for example, again, one of the most robust finding in psychology is the biggest driver of confidence is success. Right. If I've done something and I've pulled it off, that's the, the most potent. It blows everything else out of the water for what makes you more confident. So I, if I'm having, I've got an athlete who is self-belief issue or they're not that confident, I'm looking to give them quick wins on feeling successful in every single session. So you have to use these, these tools like, and here's a session that is designed for you to not be successful. Right. In fact, it's designed for you to fail. But you know that that's the goal. So then you go in with thinking, you become less obsessed with pacing, Or, you know, the zone I'm in and it's about persistence. I stuck it out. I committed to do a third of it and I got to the third and I thought, no, I'll do a more. I do more than I thought I could. I'll go to a half and then I'll turn around. Are you doing things to get yourself out of your comfort zone? And that's the way that you learn to improve your ability at it is Mm. you just have to do it
0: more often. I love that, man. I love that uh, philosophy of designing things that, you know, cannot be achieved and but you start out with the goal saying, listen, this is designed for failure. And by not failing, or or by failing, you're gonna actually succeed, right?
1: Well it's funny because we do,
0: you know, anybody
1: who's spent any time in the gym knows that occasionally we'll do reps to failure. Right. It's a it's a part and we don't think of it like, oh my God, if I can't do this one, people are gonna think I'm a why don't we use that in our endurance training? Sometimes we do. But we should be doing that far, far more often. Uh, So, yeah, there's a whole other, there's a guy called Sam McCora. um, If you haven't heard of him, he's a researcher in effort perception. Alex Hutchinson Mm -hmm. in his Endure book quotes him a lot. He's at University of Bologna now. Just some fantastic new exciting research on that's still somewhat contentious, admittedly, but about how the brain processes effort related cues or discomfort and all of the inputs that go into that little algorithm that before it spits out into our own heads as a perceived exertion rating. There's a whole other oh, no. set of things that go in, like how long do I have to put up with right. this for? Right. right? That calculation happening in milliseconds of your brain is doing without you even being aware of it. If you deny your brain that piece of information, most people's brains shit the bed. Yeah. How long what are we doing today for the run? Oh, just follow me. How long are we gonna be out? Oh, well, I don't know. Could be 30 minutes, could be three hours. Oh my God. Like what? No. System malfunction, right? I need to know where we so. So this, this, this sort of information is really important. So we can use that to advantage. We can do deceit pacing studies and we can manipulate or deliberately give athletes sessions where they don't know how long they're going to right. be out there for all good, uh, um, uh, efforts to to develop uh, um, your ability to tolerate discomfort in the future.
0: Those, though, that research I've just been digging into that last like nine months or so, where they <laughs> they've blinded athletes to a component of what they're doing, whether it's speed or power or you know yeah. whatever, or they blind them to the end point, or they falsify the information those sto- those studies are they're like hilarious to read and also kind of sad because you know like how bad the people feel that are actually doing the trials they're like god I know I'm doing 300 watts or I know I'm doing 6 minute pace and it says I'm only doing six minutes and 30 seconds a mile or something like it's just so yeah, torturous yeah, yeah. to read or how
1: angry you get if you if you are if you're asked to do you know eight four hundreds and then somewhere you finish them and you, everything the last one you want to finish on a high note they say oh no we actually no, need two no. more yeah two more and, and you just you want to like punch somebody right, All right so or, or in cycling it might be the same in running as well oh you got someone on the side of the road you're almost there it's the cut co- the hill, the, the summit is just around the corner and the summit could be 50 yards from where they said you want to go back and like murder that person right because you're so, so mad because the brain is like freaking out <laughs>
0: so good. all right Simon we're gonna leave it there man that was great this is a great conversation um before we let you go though where can people find you and more about your coaching and the book
1: Yeah. So they can find us on uh, I coach with my wife, Leslie Patterson. So they, on our, on our website, which is braveheartcoach.com, braveheartcoach.com. And there is information about our coaching and also our book on there. And we've also got something on there. We call a smog test, which is just a little uh, people can fill out to tell us about the training. And we have a free no strings chat with them about, you know, training they're doing and tips to how to improve it. Uh, so we love talking to athletes. It's information for us to help us build our data bank of things that we've heard or things that might work. Or So we're always looking for that.
0: I appreciate you coming on. This was honestly one of my favorite conversations, not only because it's an interesting topic, but also we got to use the word shag. And a few (laughs) four letter words mixed in there. So I always appreciate it. Oh, I know.
1: I I apologize. It's It's okay. It could have been worse. It could have been Leslie.
0: My my listeners are used to it by now, and I always get the caveat at the beginning. So it's all good, man. Appreciate your time. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on, Jason. Yep. All right, folks. There you go. Much thanks to Simon for coming on the podcast today. Really appreciate that conversation. I really did have a lot of fun with that. That was pretty hilarious. I hope you, the listeners, enjoyed it. If you did enjoy it, go ahead and give this podcast a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. That really helps me out a lot. You can check out Simon and Leslie's coaching and the links in the show notes. They're all there. Appreciate the heck out of each and every one of the listeners. And as always, we will see all of you out on the trails.